Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians? The book of Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus, hence Ephesians. I want to take you into the first chapter to read a section. And that said, you got to have your fingers ready this morning. We're going to be flipping around the Bible a lot. Today's message won't follow a typical exposition pattern of moving verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're rather going to be moving verse by verse in different chapters and sections in the Bible as I continue in this sermon series that I began last week that is unpacking the doctrine of adoption. So this morning we are continuing this series of, of a family made in heaven. This will be the second installment. And the title of my message this morning is The Spirit of Adoption. I want to encourage you this morning to use your outline. Your outline has a lot of content in it because as I'm referencing different sections of the Bible and teaching you on the doctrine of adoption, there's, there's just a lot to consider in the text of Scripture. And so the outline is there for you so you don't feel too feverish in terms of listening and interacting, but you can listen to me talk and then later take the outline and, and dig into those sections. I was inspired to offer these sermons on the doctrine of adoption, uh, one, because they're biblical, and this doctrine is central to our faith, but secondly, because of the timing with the month of November being National Adoption Month. National Adoption Month is celebrated in our country. It is celebrated in all, all 50 of the states, the District of Columbia, and also Puerto Rico. Other, other nations around the world acknowledge the month or they have it in their calendars at different times to draw attention as people to the, to the plight of the orphaned and, and, and to draw attention to uh, us as the people of God, of, of where we would be, but by the grace of God, we too would be orphaned, spiritually speaking. If you have been in this church for any amount of time, uh, you know that we are a church that loves to proclaim the saving work of God in Christ. It's not a Sunday unless you have heralded to you this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And central in this good news is a, is a message about God adopting sinners. Worse than being orphaned, we were dead in a rebellion against God, and God saw fit in His sovereign and providential graces to rescue us from the penalty of our sin and to welcome us into His own family. Hence uh, the sermon series, A Family Made in Heaven. This is the work of God. We're going to see this in the opening chapter of the book of Ephesians. He describes this work uh, taking place in the heavens before the foundations of the world to accomplish this work of adoption. We, we herald this message, this good news, and, and unpack this wondrous doctrine of adoption, not just in November, but all the time. And, and we also have a passion in our church. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, you know that we love to, to, to talk about the gospel, and you know that we also have a heart for wel welcoming the orphan. In my own life, uh, most of you will know that we began our family with adoption. Uh, it was intentional on our part. We thought that it would be good to begin our family with adoption because, uh, you know, having other kids later, if the other kids wanted to make fun of the adopted kid, the adopted kid could say, I was here first. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they chose me. They just had you. So, you know, I'm, I'm the number one. And it's true. Um, my, son, my son, Micah, 17 years ago, he made me a father. And when I, when I look at him, I, you know, and I, I think, you know, he's 17 years old now, and I, I think of those little baby pictures like what you have in front of you, I, I, was, made, uh, I was made a father by adoption. 
uh, in God's uh, uh, providence, uh, you know, very long story uh, short, uh, you know, the Lord crossed our paths that we could adopt this baby just, just freshly born at the hospital and came home with us and our lives were forever changed by, by this little guy. I mean, he's, he's literally my superman. I love him to death. We, um, in the process of adoption, we also got pregnant, and so my two eldest boys, Micah and Elijah, are very close in age. They're, they're like twins. When they were uh, little, little babies, you know, they would always be, you know, rolling around in the crib together, and Micah used to smother Elijah really good. It was absolutely hilarious back in the day. You know, it was double, double stroller life back in those days. Um, and, and now, as I'm, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful to God my sons are actually on an airplane in the air somewhere, uh, headed back uh, from spending, spending over a week in Africa, uh, bringing Bibles to people, sharing the good news of Christ, and uh, building bathrooms, and doing water ministry, and the rest. And all of this, you know, begins with having a heart for welcoming in the orphan and seeing how God welcomes a child into a family, and you raise that the, the, those kids in the way of the Lord, and you see how God works through this wonderful ministry of adoption. And so as I, I preach, I'm thinking of my guys, they're probably going to land at LAX around one o'clock after the service, so excited to see them and to hear the good things that God has done through their mission efforts. I'm proud of these boys. Uh, the experience of adoption and how God works through adoption is absolutely incredible. And so it's important to share these stories. Above all, it is important that we draw ourselves uh, from these stories in our lives of adoption into the text of Scripture that teaches us about adoption. Uh, here you have a picture of other stories in our life. Uh, after having a few kids, we then couldn't get enough, and so we adopted a couple more. And some of you know my little Jer Jer and Zay We love them to death. Uh, L.A. County uh, stopped us from adopting anymore. Apparently, they don't think you can raise more than seven. So uh, once, we, once we kick out the two older ones, I'm going to get back on it and make up for lost time. Um, we'll be sharing these stories and how the Ministry of Adoption works next Sunday at our seminar at 4 o'clock. But I want to get you into the text of Scripture this morning, and I've asked you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would draw your eyes at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, with, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This opening text describes this work of adoption taking place in, in the heavens before the very foundations of the world that God by his will chose to rescue those who were spiritually orphaned, who were dead, who were enemies of him and to make them to make them his very own. Moving down your outline, adoption is a soteriological image inside of the Bible, and you see that really loud and clear here in the text of Ephesians 1. Soteriology is the study of salvation, ology, study of soteros, salvation. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. Rescued from what? From punishment. Rescued from who? None other than the Holy God Himself. We have transgressed Him, we've sinned against Him, and we face a, a penalty of judgment as a result of this. 
He is the giver of life, and so the punishment that fits the crime when you rebel against the giver of life is the taking back of life. And so 10 out of 10 people sin, and 10 out of 10 people die. The wages of sin is death, the Scriptures describe to us. And so to be saved from Him and to be saved from this consequence, soteriology, we need redemption. We need forgiveness. We, we cannot earn this, you see, because we've already broken His law. And the fundamental nature of the law is that when you violate the law, you come under the penalty of the law. No amount of doing good under the law will ever compensate for the transgressing of it. A simple way of saying that is if I murdered someone, I come under the penalty of the law for the act of murder. When I go to the courtroom, I cannot stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think of all the people I haven't killed. My goodness outweighs my badness. You know, if the judge were to say, well, you know, that is a good point, you know, promise you won't do it again, you know, and, and let me go, you would say that, that judge should lose his license. That judge should be thrown in the jail too. Both of them should be thrown into the jail. The breaking of the law brings the penalty of the law. You will never be freed from the penalty by doing good. I, I labor to say this because in our culture, there is this notion that if you're spiritual or if you're good, that somehow that's going to make you right with God. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works when you come under the penalty of law. You have to pay the price. And in this case, this is the good news of Christ. He comes to pay the price for us. Uh, the Father sends the Son. He's executing this plan made before the foundations of the world that, that He would come. And so the text speaks of adoption taking place through, verse 5, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness of the penalty comes through the blood of the Son. The Son eternally dwells with the Father and the Spirit, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And a part of understanding this salvation takes us fundamentally into, as you move down the outline, see, understanding our doctrine of God and the work of salvation. Now, last week we covered the wondrous doctrine of the triunity of God. Last week we began getting into the work of the Son and His incarnation. The eternal Son takes on flesh. He becomes a full human in order to die in our place. And that's exactly what He does. It's a vicarious death. It's in our place. It was for us. And following that vicarious death is His victorious resurrection in which He rises up showing that the penalty has been paid, showing that the payment went through. As we uh, consider the relationship of the Father and the Son in this series in part one, of this forever family that we are seeking to understand through the study of God's Word, the soteriology of adoption is very loud and clear. And tied to it is this unique relationship of the Father to the Son. If you would look up, up here, a common graph that we use a lot as we herald the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Christianity is an ancient religion that has boldly worshipped God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. This is not something that Christians made up. This is something that predates Christianity. This is something that always is and will be. The eternal God has forever been Father, Son, and Spirit. This isn't man-made. On the contrary, this is God revealed. This is God's self-disclosure of Himself to us. And oh, what an amazing God we worship. God truly is love, for He exists in a communion, in a family of love. 
These relationships are not mere metaphors or anthropomorphisms. Rather, they are archetypes of reality as we know it. There are fathers and sons in the earth because there is a father and son in heaven. The father is not a father. You don't have a father without a son. So we see here that we have children on earth because there is a son in heaven. And since God is the archetype, we don't read into him what is true of us. Rather, we start by working from him. So while earthly children are procreated by parents, the Son in heaven is not procreated because He always existed and always existed as a member of the triune community that has eternally existed, in which there is, in that existence, there is a real relationship of a father and a son. If you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. Today's message will be self-contained. And in today's message, though I am building on it, so make sure that you go and listen to it. But in today's message, I want to focus, because last week we focused on the Father and the Son. Today I want to focus on the Spirit. I want to focus on the pneumatology of Scripture that describes to us the Spirit's involvement in our adoption. We were adopted, Ephesians 1, through the Son, through Jesus. This was the Father's will. This was His pleasure to accomplish this. In a series on adoption, I don't want to treat the Spirit like a stepchild. While the Spirit does not have a son relationship to the Father, He is certainly not a stepchild or a third wheel or a chaperone in the Godhead. They say that two is company, but three is a crowd. Well, that's not true as it relates to God. And we don't want our theology to idiomatically operate that way as a, as a polite gesture of asking a third person to leave because you don't want to be alone with someone. Friends, the doctrine of adoption makes no sense without the Father and the Son, and it also makes no sense without the Spirit. And so today I want to take us into that. Would you move from Ephesians chapter 1 and find your way into the Gospel of John? Find your way into the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter. Note on your outline that you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You have scriptural references and parentheses there that take you into seeing that, that fundamental in God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and fundamental in understanding the work of God in Christ in saving us. The ministry of adoption is understanding the triunity of God, and today we will focus on the third person, the Spirit. This brings me to the second point on your outline, the ministry of the Spirit in adoption. What is adoption exactly? Adoption is the act of taking voluntarily a child that is not your own. It is a, the, the voluntary act of taking a child of someone else's and making that child your own. In, in, a, in a theological sense, as we saw in Ephesians 1, Paul uses that to show how God takes sinful humanity and brings them into his redeemed family. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated adoption literally means placing as a son. It is a forensic or legal term that expresses the process by which a man brings another person into his family, endowing him with the status and privileges of a biological son or daughter. Existentially, in my own life, you know, people will ask, they say, you've adopted children, you've birthed children, do you, do you see any difference in it? Does it feel any different? And, and the God's the honest truth is, no, I don't. I don't, I don't look at my biological children as more my children than my adopted children. I see them equally. If I'm being honest, I actually like the adopted ones more. But you know, they're just, they just constantly remind me of what God has done for me when I look at them. They're little pictures of the gospel that, that every morning I hear their little feet walking around the house and it just reminds me of what God has done. 
Now, as we're thinking about adoption and we, we're getting our Bibles open and we're getting into John and I've oriented you in terms of reminding you of some things last week and now we're building on the ministry of the Spirit. Before getting into the Spirit's ministry in adoption, we, as, as, you know, um, I want to take you here to John and I want to talk about the role of the Spirit in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is fully and completely a divine person who possesses all of the divine attributes. God the Spirit applies the work of God the Son. The Spirit's distinct role in salvation is accomplishing the unified will of the Father and the Son in personal relationship with both of them. I cannot stress enough that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force. He is not an Eastern emanation or divine power or Western abstract entity. He is a he and not an it. John chapter 16, draw your eyes at verse 13. But when he... The Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, and He will take of Mine and, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Uh, the wording here in John uh, 16 is very familiar to the wording in John 15, verses 26 through 27, and John 14, verse 26. The, the purpose of the revelation here uh, that, that John is disclosing in the teachings of Jesus, his chief purpose as he's teaching his disciples is to tell them of the work of the Spirit, this necessary work that they need. And, and he, the, the, the Spirit, his chief purpose is not to make himself prominent but to magnify the person of Jesus. The, the Spirit interprets and applies the character and the teaching of Jesus to the disciples, and He does so by making Him central in their thinking. He makes God a reality to the people. Uh, far too many churches today suffer from one of two extremes. On the one hand, they effectively deny the Spirit out of fear and the desire to control things and overall worship a, a non-emotional culture. Too much of that Spirit talk, that, that typically goes weird. We don't want none of that. That's one extreme. On the other hand, the emotions can go wild in the so-called apostolic, Spirit-filled, Holy Ghost folks, and it gets kind of flamboyant and socially awkward, if I could just be candid. We don't want to have these extremes. We want to have a balanced understanding of what the Scriptures teaches us. The Holy Spirit is real, and He's alive, and it's important for you to understand Him. And with regard to His character and His activity, the text here is describing Him as a rather modest individual. He doesn't want to bring attention to Himself. The Spirit doesn't, doesn't want our attention to be on Him. Rather, His job is to draw attention to Christ. In the aforementioned emotional extremes uh, that we have in Holy Spirit circles, there's typically a watered-down version of the gospel that goes along with it. They, they draw too much attention to the Spirit, and they draw it away from the gospel, and, and it misses so much. And then on the other extreme, you have people who you sort of never talk about Him. And again, we want to avoid these extremes. There's, there's so much in this text is he's pointing his disciples, Jesus is, to the Spirit, and he wants them to understand the work of the Spirit, and he describes him as pointing the disciples to him. Uh, perhaps the best way that I have of thinking of this is that the Holy Spirit is Christ's hype man. You know what a hype man is? Uh, a hype man at a concert is the guy who gets on stage and he gets the crowd going for the main act. The hype man has a job. The hype man gets out there, draws attention to a performer that's about to come on stage, and typically does it with call and response. 
He gets them going so, so that the main stage, the main act is, is, is main. Um, here's the Urban Dictionary uh, definition of a hype man. For those of you who are lost, you're like, what is he talking about? A hype man is somebody who gets on the mic before the DJ throws down and gets the crowd all pumped up. A hype man doesn't steal the show. The hype man is there to draw attention to another. Tragically, the job of the hype man, or traditionally, not tragically, traditionally, the job of the hype man is getting the audience hyped up. So too, the job of the Spirit here, according to the text of John, is getting us hyped up to see the work of the gospel in Christ, to draw our attention to Him. Uh, overall, He plays the support role in the Godhead, serving the Father through the Son with pure love and total focus on pointing you to Him. He is the main thing. When it comes to the roles and the members of the Godhead and the Trinity, many, uh, you know, they understand the Father, or they, you know, we get the Son, Christmas and Easter and all that stuff. But the job of the Spirit is, is, is key. He, he gets the crowd going. He points us to the Son. Now, we got to move quick here, but I want to talk about the work of the Spirit broadly in creation, and then we're going to focus in and zoom in on the work of the Spirit in adoption. On your outline there, the work of the Spirit in creation. We see that the Spirit is heavenly involved in creation. He, he works from the very beginning of the Bible. You open up the Bible in the book of Genesis, and you see the Spirit on the move in the creation of the cosmos. He's hovering over the waters. The Father speaks the worlds into existence through His Son by His Word, and the Spirit hovers over the waters of creation. Psalm 104 verse 30 indicates that God creates, sending forth His Spirit. We see Him from the very beginning in creation. We see Him from the very be beginning with the fall of humanity and converting the called. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, God predestined to save us from among the lost. We saw that saving was done through the Son and converting the lost. Salvation is this work of the Spirit. So we see the Spirit involved in creating cosmos, converting the call. Thirdly, we see the Spirit's involvement in commending the Christ. This is, uh, uh, you know, the text of John that we read in other texts like Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, and Romans 8, chapter 11. We, we, we see the Spirit at, at work and, and drawing attention to the Christ. From the very beginning of His ministry, as it relates to Christmas and the Incarnation, the Spirit comes upon the virgin in the virgin conception. We see the Spirit at, at, at work in baby Jesus. We see the Spirit at work in adult Jesus in the resurrection. The Spirit is moving in the resurrection. The Spirit is moving in His earthly ministry and His teaching. All the live long day as the hype man saying, look at the sun, look at the sun, look at the sun. Being made in the image of God, it should not surprise us that we are made to do the same. Sin, of course, has messed us up. Uh, and so we're more concerned with our image than his image. You ever, uh, you know, someone post a group picture, right? When there's a group picture that you're in, what do you look at first? Yourself. <laughs> it's like, oh, group picture, let me find myself and make sure I don't look whack in it or whatever and untag myself, right? We, we have a way of being concerned with our image and not God's image. The Spirit doesn't have that problem. He is pure and devoted to the end. He finds great joy in glorifying the, the Son. One of the chief ways that He glorifies the Son is in the work of conversion and in the work of the church. Moving down on these subpoints here in these scriptures to consider, we move from commending the Christ to constituting the church. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the church is born with what? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, uh, ch chapter 12 through chapter 13, the Apostle Paul speaks of the members of the church and how the Spirit is the one who baptizes them spiritually into a community. 
When a person is saved at that moment, the Spirit baptizes them into the community of the church and He indwells the church. The church is the temple of the Spirit of God. And the work that He does among us, He, he constitutes the church. Next point, He convicts criminals. By criminal, I mean sinners. That's what we are as sinners. We're lawbreakers. We break His law. Really, the worst kind of criminals because we have broken uh, not just any old law. It's not just the law of California or some ordinances in Los Angeles. We've broken the very law of God. John 16, verse 8 speaks of the Spirit convicting us of sin. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of how sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Acts 7:51 speaks of how sinners will resist the conviction of the Spirit. Criminals who glory in their lawbreaking, nonetheless the Spirit is patient to constantly convict us and draw us in. Uh, finally here, uh, we see the Spirit's involvement in the writing and the preserving of Scripture. The Spirit is the one who has inspired the Bible so that its main character and the main plot line of the Bible is all about Jesus. Again, he's the hype man. He's like, look, look at Jesus. Look at how awesome he is from the get in creation, in conversion, in commending, in constituting, in convicting, in composing the canon. Let's move down the outline here to the spirit and salvation. And let me take you into the text of John chapter 3. So if you would turn back to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to get into some of this soteriology stuff. The saving of sinners and the making of sons. John chapter 3. So the world is messed up. That should be no surprise. Uh, lawyers destroy justice. Governments destroy freedom. Educators destroy truth. Uh, we live in an age where, you know, we're seeing time and time again all kinds of crazy stuff going on in education. There's no longer, you know, boys and girls. You, there's theys and thems and zs and zers, and you can pick what gender you are. We got education just propagating all kinds of nonsense. Psychiatrists destroying minds, science destroying reality, major media destroying information, spiritualism destroying true doctrine. This is only explained by rebellion, by sin. And the Spirit enters into our human rebellion with His omnipotent power and love. He overrides the rebel and brings him, into, and brings him into what would be the camp of the enemy. But instead of keeping them as, as, as prisoners of war, He makes them into sons. He saves them. We see the Spirit empowering the preaching of the gospel as we study the Scripture. Acts chapter 1, Jesus told His disciples, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Spirit empowers the preaching of the Gospel. The Spirit brings regeneration. This is why I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel, the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Draw your eyes at verse 5. Jesus here says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know from where it comes or where it is going. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is His prerogative. He regenerates. That is a term that speaks of creating life in us, a life that was not there as we are born dead in sin. So the Spirit empowers the preaching of the Gospel. The Gospel is the power unto salvation. The Spirit accompanies the preaching of the Gospel in regenerating the heart so that new life comes. The Spirit then continues working in our salvation by sanctifying the justified believer. That is the transformation of us inside. God is constantly convicting us and doing stuff in us and making us different. And that's a work of the Spirit to draw us into the Son. 
In salvation, we are justified. In justification, we are sanctified. With all this in mind, let's move on your outline to the spirit and adoption of the justified. And let me take you from the Gospel of John. Turn to the right and find your way to the 8th chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Moving on your outline here. Again, I said it's going to be a bit of a fire hose this morning. We've got a lot of text to consider. On your outline here, you have this subpoint that the Spirit makes us into a family. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're turning to Romans 8. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in making members of the church family of God. In that chapter, Paul makes it very clear that we become believers, we become Christians by the work of the Spirit, and that work isn't just to save us and put us on a shelf, but it's to actually make us family. And that work is twofold. One, washing us of our sin, and second, making us family. Justification and adoption. This takes us into the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, and I want to draw your eyes at verse one of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Therefore, you see that? Therefore, when you read a therefore, you want to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? In the seventh chapter, he just was speaking about the, the power of sin under the law and how the law condemns us. And at the end of the seventh chapter, he seems to say, wretched man am I, who's going to set me free? And then he speaks of Christ and how Christ sets us free. And then he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Notice the, the spirit and the Son, Christ, are linked together in the work of redemption to free us. And later we will see the assurance in the two of them working together in this work. Assurance comes from freedom. When we are free from the power of sin, then we become assured that we are also free from its penalty. The power of sin, Paul describes as the flesh, an experience of, of ensnarement to it, coming under the grip of its power, the believer has been freed from that power by the residency of a greater power that comes from the Holy Spirit. However, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Notice that Paul is speaking of redemption in terms of the two, the Son and the Spirit, working together. Again, the Spirit is that hype man, and He points us to the Son. They work together. There is no you know, struggle between them over who's the coolest, who's the dopest, who gets to do what. They're working together. Verse 14, for we all are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the what? What does it say? Verse 14, these are the what? The sons, the sons of God. To be led by the Spirit of God means not to be guided by the Spirit in decision-making, but it means to be put under the dominating influence of the Holy Spirit. The clause sums up the various descriptions of life in the Spirit in verses 5 through 9. Paul can claim that those so led by the Spirit are sons, and that is the assurance. You're, you're, you're family members. In Romans 8, 9, Paul links the reception of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, indwelling the believer in our sonship. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. According to the passage in front of us, the presence of the Spirit of, of, of God's Son functions as proof of the believer's adoption into the family of God by the Spirit. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons in which we cry out, 
Abba, Father. Now, ladies in the house, all this sun talk, don't feel left out, okay? There's passages that talk about, you know, uh, the daughters of God as well. But the significance here, though, in telling both guys and gals we're sons, in that culture, the son, the son is the one who gets the inheritance. And, and as Paul describes salvation, he says there's neither male nor female. There, that, like, that doesn't matter. God saves men and he saves women. But for ladies in the house to understand and appreciate, the text is calling you a son, which means that you're not sub-status or whatever. You have an equal inheritance in him. You have a, 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 an equal claim to call the father Abba, the text says. Abba, Father. I want to say something about this term Abba. It is an Aramaic word that means uh, father. When I'm, when I'm in Jerusalem, when I'm in Israel, I love uh, like being, just being out. And you know when you're in a different culture and people are speaking a different language, in Israel, if you're walking around in a, just a common area or wherever, you'll hear little gaggles of, of Jewish children alongside their, their fathers. And even to this day, they, they, they call them Abba. Abba, 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 Abba. And it's really cute. You hear Abba, Abba. It's a really kind of cute thing. But with the cuteness uh, in it, we, we got to be careful not to reduce it. There is something cute. There is something profound. So I want to pause to talk about this term, Abba. Well, let me quote to you from noted New Testament scholar, Dr. Gordon Fee. Abba was the language of infancy, along with Ima, mother, the first word of the Aramaic-speaking children that they would learn. But it is also an endearing term that children of all ages continue to use, expressing both intimacy and special relatedness. What may begin as baby talk is not therefore to be outgrown. On the contrary, it is to be grown into. We are the beloved children of the eternal God, the knowledge shed, shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit, Romans 5.5, 5, and by that same Spirit is manifest in our lifelong cry to God as our heavenly Abba. Crying Abba to God through the Spirit of God's Son means that our relationship of utter dependence on God lost in the fall has been restored by the Son. We can depend on Him for everything. The experience of the Spirit leads the believer not only to a position of justification before God, but it should also lead to an ongoing awareness of the privileges of childhood, special relationship and companionship with God Himself, being in the presence of God through Christ and by the Spirit was for the Apostle Paul a cause not for fear, but for confidence. For confidence. Abba, Abba expresses that confidence. You can't just call anybody Abba. That means you're in a relationship. Abba is more than just papa, papa, daddy. It's more than like child's talk. It, it, it's also expressing an intimate relationship and being uh, under the authority of one. A father is in a position of authority. The word Abba, again, of Aramaic origin. Here you see it in front of you. In the New Testament, the term Abba appears only three times. It appears here in Romans that you have in front of you. It appears in Galatians 4, 6, and it also appears in Mark 14, 36. These three texts were not written in, in, in Aramaic. Uh, and the New Testament comes to us through Greek, so they weren't written in Aramaic, but they include that Aramaism. They leave it in the original language, Abba. And they follow Abba with the phrase hapater. Hapater is Greek. Hot pater, it sounds like a hot pocket, hot potato. Hot pater, pater, patras, father. Abba, hot pater. Uh, last week, we reflected in the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where the disciples are being taught by Jesus how to pray, and Jesus begins the prayer with what? Our Father. Pater hemon, our Father. 
And he calls the disciples. He invites the disciples to call his dad their dad, our father. Recall that in, in, in that verse, Jesus also stresses a level of holiness. He says, hallowed be your name. And so it, it's not babyish. There's a hallowing with Abba HaPater. HaPater is a holy way to address the Father. It's serious. Abba may be on the lips of a child, but it's not childish. It's serious. Abba HaPater. In a, a, a really important essay in the Journal of Theological Studies, Dr. Barr He's got this article called Abba Isn't Daddy, really trying to press back and say, but don't, don't, don't minimize it as just you know, gibberish or whatever. He writes, if the New Testament writers had been conscious of the nuance of daddy, they could have easily have expressed themselves so. In fact, they were all aware of the nuances, not just of, of daddy, but of father. The semantics of Abba itself, based on various evidences, all agree in support of the nuance father, rather than the nuance daddy. Um, all of this to say we, do, we don't want to make Abba too childish or casual. We don't want to reduce it. And I'm, I'm belaboring this point because I've heard a lot of Bible teachers and they, Abba, Abba, you know, and they make it sound kind of goofball, honestly. And so I want to press back and go, yeah, okay, but it's, this is still serious talk here. Dr. Michael Heisner writes, scholars have demonstrated that the Aramaic term Abba was not exclusively used by children, but frequently by adults in adult discourse. Reducing the term to childish, though affectionate, prattle guts is of important interpretive nuances. Another noted scholar for you, Joseph Grassi, in his article, Abba Father, in the Journal of the Academy of, of, of Religion, he's got a really interesting insights into this to demonstrate that Abba, as used by Jesus in Mark's passage, has a special meaning of address from a devoted, obedient son. Despite his horror and anguish before the prospect of an imminent sacrificial death, Isaac calls to God his Abba as a faithful son obeys the voice of the Father, of, of God through, through the Father. Parallel to this, Jesus says Abba to God in the same way that Isaac does to Abraham. That's a very insightful thing. Now, as we are reading the text, let me get off the soapbox here in terms of Abba and the Aramaic context of it. Uh, ho hopefully you walk away from it just like, this is serious, this is somber, we get to call him our Father. Look at verse 16. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You, you, you know you're adopted because the Spirit testifies of this within us. There is this assurance as he reminds you, you belong in this family. You've been made sons through the Son. Verse 17, and if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. God views those who have received His Son as full heirs of all of His riches. This adoption goes beyond being made a member of God's family. The term adoption refers to giving someone adult status with full rights of inheritance. The Romans and the Greeks were almost fanatical about the male heir. If they were childless, they would actually adopt a son who was nearly grown up to give that guy the rights of an heir. Even in instances where there were several sons, parents might place as son the second or the third boy if they believed the oldest would not be a good manager of the family property. In either case, the adoption ceremony gave the favored young man adult status. In salvation, we enter into God's family and we're given that status. Status as heirs, as children. I mean, think about that. Uh, I grew up broke. Uh, my dad grew up broke. Uh, you know, thinking about, you know, when your parents die or whatever. 
I, I, we're, my brother and I are getting nothing from, from my old man. I mean, we just didn't grow up with anything. So you don't even think about having an inheritance. But think about being adopted into a family that's balling out of control. Right? Daddy Warbucks. And he's like, you get all of this. This is all yours. How much infinitely more to be adopted by God the Creator. All this is yours. This is fantastic. Now, friends, listen, I want you to notice that airship is linked with something that is actually not fantastic in the text. Verse 17, it talks about suffering. Airship is linked to suffering. Look at verse 17. We are heirs who suffer with Christ. Listen, as the Son of God had to suffer before entering into glory, so too we sons of God by adoption must also suffer with Him before sharing in His glory. This is clear in Philippians 1.29, Philippians 3.20, 2 Corinthians 1.5. Because we are joined to Christ, the servant of the Lord, despised and rejected by men, we can expect that the path of our glorious inheritance will be strewn with difficulties and dangers. But God will use it all for His glory. As we read in Romans 8.28, draw your eyes at verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. Uh, friends, the chapter is amazing. In Romans 8, Paul proclaims that Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and death through His death on the cross. The era of bondage and sin has ceased, and the power of the Spirit means that believers have been enabled to live a life for God, a life of selflessness, and yes, a life, a life also of suffering. This means that in this life we don't need gimmicks or quick fixes to live. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us and to free us and to remind us of what God has done for us. Move quickly from the book of Romans. Turn, turn, turn to the right and find your way into the book of Galatians. And we're going to see how Paul picks up this, this theme of adoption in Galatians. The Spirit frees us. Next point on your outline, from sin and adoption, Galatians chapter 3. I know in a room like this that there are people in bondage to sin. I know in a room like this there are people who have been set free from sin. In a room like this there are people who no doubt have been in bondage of sin like for years and you look back with regret for the years that are lost. This is the beauty of the gospel. It, it, it is that all can be rescued and all can come to Him. All can be set free from the slavery to sin. Uh, slavery to sin is the antithesis of being in a loving family. And so the Bible speaks of salvation in terms of adoption. It's very fitting. It's the antithesis of it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says what? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The ancient great theologian Thomas Aquinas explained that we as believers are sons in the Son. Uh, this is correct. We come into fellowship with the Father through the Son, and this fellowship is Trinitarian. And so we look to the role of the Spirit in today's message. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. As I was sharing earlier, right, the law brings the penalty of it. You come under the penalty of the law, you've got you to gotta serve time. You've got to pay the consequence of that. No amount of good works gets you out of that. I, you know, it, it, it just doesn't matter. If, if I kill someone, I can't appeal to all the people that I haven't killed. It doesn't work that way. You come under the penalty of it. You are under it, he says in verse 5. 
But what, is, what has God done? He saved you from that penalty. Christ was sent to the earth as one born of a woman. This was necessary to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. And it was necessary, it's a necessary thing, the incarnation, so that Christ would take on flesh, so that that flesh would die. And through this, Christ has made us sons. Paul writes about our adoption as sons in verse 5. Is that, that, that enjoyment of the promises of God to the ancient people. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, what? Abba, ha, pater. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir. You are an heir. Paul refers to Christ and refers to his act of redemption on the cross as securing our adoption as sons. He individualizes this work in terms of the, the, the Spirit crying with, within us. And we, we hear this in our hearts, Abba, ha, pater. Paul explains that we are sons because God has given us the Spirit. The two, the Son and the Spirit, are working together. And this work is a forensic work. It's, it's through His death. It's through that justification. You know, in the process of adoption, uh, in, the, in the cases where we adopted, one of the coolest parts in the adoption process is this. Uh, you go through the fostering with the county and everything, the social workers and whatever, and, you know, you go through all of that. And, you know, when it's, when it's all said and done, then you get, a, a, you get an appointment at the courthouse. And you go down to the courthouse and you wait your turn and then you go before the judge and the judge, you know, asks you questions and you swear in and all that stuff. And then at some point in that process, the, what the judge does is they take, they take the child's birth certificate, right? Toss that thing. They reissue a new one. And on, on the new one, it has, it has my name and my wife's name on it with our adopted son. And that birth certificate is identical to our biological kids. If, if there's ever a moment where you're, you know, you're having a bad day or whatever, you're like, oh, it's adopted or whatever, I can pull out that certificate and say, son, you're my son. Look at what it says. And so to this, this Paul's like, you're, you're sons. Look at what it says. It, it, and it's not rooted in you that you could lose this thing of salvation. It, it's tied to the cross. It's tethered to the cross, that historical reality. Your 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 sons. Now let me land the plane and, and, and conclude this message. What we've seen in today's message, building on last week, this forever family made in heaven. We began in Ephesians. We saw it starting in heaven. We see the Father before the foundations of the world. And we see the work of the Spirit in, in, in converting us and calling us and crying out in us and doing all this cool stuff. We, we get to see all that. Some points of conclusion. And let me use the Gospel of John to make one of these. So last text to turn to, John chapter 14, if you would please turn there. Three points for conclusion. The Spirit as a person in the Godhead. Do you know Him personally? As we've seen in the text, the Spirit is spoken of in personal terms. As it relates to our adoption, He is, He is, you might say, the social worker who, who brings us to the Father on the merits of the Son. This gracious gift of salvation results in a personal experience whereby we can say we know God and we're known by Him. This is a personal reality. Yes, it is corporate. It is, this is a reality for us corporately, but it's a reality for us individually as well. This individuality, individual reality results in all sorts of joy and praise. 
Romans 15, 13, now the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace in, in believing and abounding in hope in the, in the power of the Spirit. He's, he's the social worker. He brings us in and then he just constantly reminds us that actually you belong here. There's something called imposter syndrome where sometimes you don't feel like you belong in a place. You can sabotage relationships when you feel like, man, I don't belong here or these people don't like me or whatever. Like the Spirit is there saying, no, 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 you, 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 you belong here. And so, so, so as we're concluding, you know, the call is like, do you, do you know Him? Are you known by Him? You experience this reality. And, and if not, cry out to Him. Cry out, oh, oh God, I want to know what Pastor Matt is talking about. Make that real in me. I want to know, be His presence, the Spirit as the presence of God among us. Do you... Dwell with Him intimately. John chapter 14, draw your eyes at the text, verse 16. Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it did not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. He is with us. He is in us. We can know Him this is personal. This is up close. Uh, he's, his presence is with us. He's, he's been sent for us. He abides in us forever. And His work isn't just so that we can have warm, fuzzy feelings or whatever. His work is so that we will go into the world, the final point, and be proclaimers of this thing. Do you share Him boldly? Do you dwell with Him intimately? Do you know Him personally? Again, what is the Spirit's role? He's the social worker who brings us into the family on the merits of the Son. And the, 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 the Spirit's role is the hype man to point all attention to the Son. If we are to walk in the steps of the Spirit, it means that we will be committed to that end as well. That we're going out into the world and as politically incorrect as it is, we're saying, hey, Jesus is real. Hey, you've sinned. Hey, you need to be forgiven. Hey, guess what? He offers all the forgiveness that you need. Hey, you know how you access that? Pray to Him. Turn from your sins. Come to Him. The work of the Spirit is to draw that attention to Him, so we mustn't ever shy away from that. As we conclude our worship service, we always respond to the Word of God in, in singing songs. So we got two songs that we're going to sing. And during these songs... It's a time for us to come to the communion table. Every week we hear the gospel preached and we respond to it in the communion table. On the table in front of us, there's little cups of juice and little pieces of bread. And those are to remind us of what the Son has done. How we obtain redemption through His body, by His blood. And just as the table is, is open, it's a, a picture of this gift a meal prepared for us, a, an act of grace that we don't deserve and we certainly didn't desire, but by the work of the Spirit within us, we have been given life and repentance and faith. And he continues to cry out in our hearts, Abba HaPater. So I'm going to pray. We're going to come to the communion table. We'll sing some songs and conclude the service uh, with, a, with a final prayer after we finish singing and partaking in the table. Let's go before the Lord. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this weighty and important topic that, 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 that you are a God who adopts, that you are a God who loves, that, that none need be orphaned, that in your home there are plenty of beds, 
plenty of food, plenty of love. And so, Father, I, I pray that your Spirit would do His work of adoption here this morning, bringing regeneration and life, that He would do His work of sanctification, bringing joy and assurance as, as, as we come to Him this morning to be changed by Him and to have all attention, all hype belong to the Son. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your work in our hearts. We thank You for the gift of Your Spirit poured out. And we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, commune with us as we enter into a time of communion and song. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.